0: Carla Frichero is professor of literature, feminist studies, and the history of consciousness at the University of California, Santa Cruz, where she has taught since 1991. She is trained in continental renaissance studies, and she is the author of several books, including Father Figures, Genealogy and Narrative Structure in Rabelais, Popular Culture in Introduction, and Queer Early Modern. In addition, she has written essays on early modern and postmodern literature and culture, feminist and queer theory and criticism, psychoanalysis, and animal studies. She is currently at work on a book about animal and non human animal being, which is entitled Animate Figures and from which the talk this evening is drawn. Professor Fracciaro is here with us this evening to fulfill a dual purpose. She is the inaugural speaker in this semester's series of public programming for the Barnard Center for Research on Women. And she is also part of a speaker series sponsored by the Women's Studies Department to highlight the importance of the academic study of women, gender, and sexuality. Um, Sometimes at a women's college, we think about women so much that we forget the importance of the academic part of this. And so the Women's Studies Department wanted to bring together a small speaker series in order to remind us of this that Professor Frachero should be the speaker to embody such dual purposes could not be more perfect. Her work has, from the point of her earliest publications, materialized commitments to purposes that cross boundaries and animated multiplicities. From her first book, Father Figures, through her introduction to popular culture, to the more recent queer, early modern, Professor Ferchero has challenged her readers to rethink the boundaries that have contained their understandings of many things, including basic understandings of culture, both the culture of the early modern and that of the present day. She asks us to think, are these two time periods really so separate? Can they, in fact, be separated at all? As well as our understandings of time and how it is presumed to flow. Does it flow simply in a singular, linear, and progressive fashion? And finally, she raises questions of human subjectivity and relation, of what it means to be a human being and of how that being is put together, is constructed, if you will. The Women's Studies Department and the Barnard Center for Research on Women, in conjunction with our colleagues in the Africana Studies and American Studies programs, have for the past few years engaged in precisely such projects of boundary crossing and relationality as we have formed a new consortium for critical interdisciplinary studies as a means to recognize and even promote the mutual constitution of our institutionally separated fields. In taking up this institutional project, we have also faced an intellectual question that has required us to rethink the antecedents of modern identity and the coordinates of time and space. Those very things that have previously defined the areas and periods of both our research and teaching. Professor Fertero will help us to continue these intellectual explorations to the very boundaries of the human that is so often understood as the basis for the humanities. Thus, her paper this evening continues the important work of what could be called queering scholarship itself that her earlier projects undertook so effectively. In her words, the talk tonight, Carnivorous Virility, Becoming Dog in Pre- and Post-Modernity, argues for a querying of temporality that would undo our nationally circumscribed and periodized fields of literary study in order to work through figures that haunt texts across historical eras." End quote. Given our projects and commitments here at Barnard, we simply could not ask for a better way to start the semester. Carla Frachero. This is um, divided in parts,
1: uh, partly because I was trying to do something different from the sequential talk, so it's kind of a collage. One, introduction, figural historiography. In literary history and literary modernity, Paul Mol suggests that a change is required in historical approaches to literature as these are currently understood and practiced. For example, He argues that one would have to abandon, and this is him, the pre-assumed concept of history as a generative process, of history as a temporal hierarchy that resembles a parental structure in which the past is like an ancestor, begetting in a moment of unmediated presence, a future capable of repeating in its turn the same generative process. And he continues with that first quotation on your list. I'm not going to read the quotes that are on your um, list. Uh, DeMaul names what has become an object of scrutiny in queer theorizations of historicism and of temporality the tendency to view history as progressive, teleological, and generative, so that at least metaphorically it participates in ideologies of heteronormative reproduction, or what Lee Edelman has called reproductive futurism. In Queer Early Modern, I wanted to think about how this critique of temporality could work for studies of the relationship between the past and the present. I was especially interested in the problem of time in two ways. First, how traumatic events live on in the future as affect or emotion, how the past haunts the future. And I thought about this through Jacques Derrida's category of spectrality. And two, what kinds of historical models and writing practices might be able to account for the nonlinear, non-progressive movement of figures across times and places? What I called figural or phantasmatic historiography. The queering of temporality, a twisting, bending, turning, or perversion of time, then, might do a better job of accounting for the ways affect insists and persists through time and in history. Affects do not obey sequence. They have histories, but they do not respect the historical injunction to move on, to get beyond, Rather, the properties proper to affect seem better described in the language of psychoanalysis. Persistence, repetition, stasis, fading, waning, sudden change. Because, therefore, these kinds of temporality include affect, the emotional charge associated with events and experiences, because the past haunts the present and future, it also seemed important to me to think about subjectivity, that is to say, the subjective experience of events and time, and to queer that subjectivity. This meant, in part, thinking about non-normative, alternative subjects in the past and the different stories they tell. But also, I asked, what might it mean to disengage subjectivity from individuals and subjects, what is usually the domain of psychoanalysis, in order to practice a figural psychoanalytics To analyze some of the ways the past lives on in figures, which could be discursive commonplaces, images, representations, cultural fantasies. And thus, um, to analyze some of the ways that past lives on and thus isn't really past at all. What would it mean to take seriously the possibility that history repeats itself, not necessarily event-wise, but in its driving affective force? I argued that to understand the work figures do, we must make use of phantasmatic historiographies whose temporalities resemble psychoanalytic understandings of time as subjectivity and affect more than they do the time of progressivist history. To proceed this way historically is to read the impersonal passion that figurative language conveys and thus perhaps also work through some of the ways we continue to be haunted at times knowingly, but also in ways we're unable to imagine or acknowledge. The book I'm now working on, Animate Figures, expands the notion of figural or phantasmatic historiography by exploring relations of human and non-human animal being as pressing ethical questions confronting post-humanist thought in the West today. Animal theory is queer because it opens up questions of non-normative subjectivities, sexualities, and desire. It denormativizes or decenters the human by showing how the human is one subject position among others. And this is sometimes also called post-humanism. The book thus tests alternative modes of understanding figures of otherness that are not necessarily, but also, Human others. The chapter I discussed this evening brings together long transnational histories connected by the persistence of a figure, the synanthrope, or the merger of dog and man. The synanthrope is a material semiotic figure, that is, it has representational and phenomenal substance. It was thought to exist in the world, it may still be thought to exist in the world. And it is semiotic. That is, it's a sign of something. It's meaningful. I want to tell a story, or a bricolage of stories, about this dog-human merger and understand some of its meanings and haunting, affective effects. My case study begins with a historical trauma, the conquest of the New World by Europeans. The figure I'm following, that ubiquitous companion of colonizers in the new world, is the devouring dog. The symptomatic figure repeats itself, travels between and among subjects and objects, and condenses in itself a whole series of new and old world meanings. From companion to cannibal, primitive savage to savagely civilizational, and even as I track its history, I want to attend to its affective echoes, to the way it haunts, one might say dogs, are footsteps. Two, ontological merger. Donna Haraway writing about the ontological choreography that configures dog human nature cultures notes, this is her, dogs in their historical complexity matter here. Dogs are not an alibi for other themes. Dogs are fleshly, material semiotic presences in the body of technoscience. Dogs are not surrogates for theory. They are not just here to think with. They are here to live with. Partners in the crime of human evolution, they are in the garden from the get-go. And um, she continues uh, with her trope for dog tales, which she calls metaplasm in quotation number two. In How Dogs Dream, Eduardo Cohn observes the intersubjective relating of dogs and humans among the runa of Ecuador's upper Amazon. He argues that the Amazonian Amazonian cosmological framework doesn't use culture or the human to mark difference. It doesn't, in other words, ontologically privilege the human as sole locus of subjectivity and agency, but rather confers being on life in a complex ecology of trans-specific cells. Generalizing on this insight, he notes, this is him, we humans live in a world that is not only built according to how we perceive it and the actions those perceptions inform. Our world is also defined by how we get caught up in the interpretive worlds, the multiple natures, the umwelt of other kinds of beings with whom we relate and um, he continues in quotation number three. Dogs who have the longest history of non-human, compa- non-human companionate existence with humans have excelled at the process of ontological blurring, learning to become human, as Cohn, borrowing from Deleuze and Guattari's Becoming Animal puts it, in ways that ensure their survival. Humans, it is said, have strategically capitalized on canine hierarchical social organization by inserting themselves into the top position to assure canine subordination to human volition. At the same time, for humans, dogs serve a prosthetic function. They add to the human, enhancing human being while also supplementing a lack in that being. For the runa, there's the added consciousness of resemblance. Even the quichua term for persons, the pronomial marker runa, and the derogatory term in Spanish for their mongrel dogs is the same. They both share a relation of predator-prey, dominant submission with their environment and the jaguars who inhabit it and they share a history of colonial encounters. For during the conquest, Spanish ancestors of these dogs hunted these people's ancestors. These dogs whom the Avila runa often acquire from white mestizos nearby and who become in turn subservient to the runa. The mutual entanglement of dogs and humans in this ecology of selves creates a need for mediation between two poles what Cohn calls cosmological autism, on the one hand, the loss of the ability to become other, which, for the runa, involves the loss of the ability to hunt successfully. And, on the other, excessive merger, a becoming dog that would entail the loss of human selfhood and its privileged position in the hierarchy. Figurality performs the mediation, Metaphor is able, and I'm quoting him, to unite disparate but analogous and therefore related entities. It recognizes a gap as it points to a connection. Metaphor aligns different ontologically situated points of view. The terms of comparison, dog and human, maintain their related discreteness even as they mutually contaminate each other on an ontological level. Tracking dog-human figurations in this manner suggests an an approach that does not privilege only the human or the non-human as the site of subjectivity and agency, but implicates both in a consequential becoming. Three, synanthropes. Cinocephalic, dog-headed, and synanthropic cannibals have a long and strange history and participate in a transnational translatio imperii from east to west and past to present in the classic movement of ideological narratives of Western modernity. The point not of origin but of fusion between old and new, myths and history, is a small moment, a brief text in the history of transatlantic travel. In Christopher Columbus's diario of the first voyage to the Americas, as transcribed or reported by Bartolomé de las Casas, appear the following passages, separated by a space of three days, from November 23, 1492 to November 26, 1492. And I'm quoting. They said there were people on it, on the island, who had one eye in their foreheads, and others whom they called cannibals, of whom they showed great fear. And all the people have extreme fear of the men of Kaniba, or Canima, and they say that they live on this island of Bohio, fearing that they would have them to eat. And they say that they have but one eye and the face of a dog. Cyclops, Cynocephaly, cannibal, canis, carib, and, of course, the great Khan, all converge in an oniric condensation that grafts ancient resonances onto new bodies to produce material mongrels, both human and canine. Many ancient writers testified to the dog-headed, sometimes dog-faced, human-eating peoples at the extremities of their worlds. Dog-headed cannibals and dogmen may have begun by being assigned to India, but soon they became the inhabitants of parts of Africa, of many islands in Asia and Africa, and eventually also of the New World. European and Islamic medieval encyclopedists and travelers confirmed their existence in the far more chatty ethnographic discourse of travelogues, adding details regarding their customs and character and mitigating with simile the suggestion of monstrous morphology dogmen and dog-headed cannibals are in these narratives men one story posits their origins in the union of a female human and a wolf Others, ancient and medieval, imagine sex-segregated islands where gynocratic Amazons are impregnated by travelers or other monsters and give birth to other Amazons and cynocephalic cannibals who, in turn, defend Amazonian territory from attack. Columbus echoes these tales in his 1493 Letter to the Sovereigns, and that's quotation number four on your sheet. To be a dog-headed cannibal, then, is to occupy the periphery of an observer's known world. But to be a dog-headed cannibal is also to display hostility to strangers, those who originate from beyond the borders of one's known world. Dog-headed cannibals connote war, battle, an enemy relationship, and a virility untainted by heterosociality. And this devouring doggishness has affinities with both sides of the colonial encounter. In the Hawaiian legend of Kaupe, the Alohi demigod assumes the form of a dog and cannibalizes as he colonizes Oahu, Maui, and Hawaii until he is defeated and becomes, instead, a ghost dog. The merger of dog and man produces a carnivorous virility able both to reason and to ferociously attack and consume the enemy. Four New World Encounters In Sodometries, Jonathan Goldberg recounts the story of Balboa's massacre of 40 Panamanian Indians of Quarequa who were accused of sodomy by delivering them as prey to his dogs. Columbus also brought dogs, and there are many reports that European public markets sold human body parts to furnish dogs with a taste for human flesh in preparation. This last detail may come from Las Casas' famous description of the practice of using dogs against Native Americans, occurring throughout his account and culminating in a textual inspiration for New World Cannibal illustrations. And this is quotation number five. Did these synanthropes know the apocryphal stories of Saints Andrew and Bartholomew among the Parthians, where the cannibalistic, cynocephalic man, abominable, is converted to Christianity and in the process has his nature tamed only to be commanded to unleash it later against his compatriots whom he slaughters disembowels and devours it's worth remembering too that the medieval order of dominican monks were folk etymologically referred to as the canes domini or hounds of god god as dog is the co-pilot here but in disavowal <laughs> To pursue the holy work of empire, one must be cannibalistic and dog-like, eradicating the devouring and savage doggishness of the other. Dog is the pharmacon, the poison that is also the cure. Columbus and the conquerors after him seem poised on this threshold between literal and figurative. But the humanism in disavowal that would pit cannibalistic dogs Against Dog-Headed Cannibals in the New World suggests that the ancient spectral synanthropes have not ceased to haunt this scene. 5. Preza Canario's Among the territories colonized with difficulty by the Castilian crown in the 15th century was an archipelago off the northwestern coast of Africa, now called the Canary Islands, inhabited by a group of people related to the Berbers who came to be known as the Guanches. Pliny, who located a race of dogmen, Canarii, in western Africa, called these the Fortunate Isles and identified one of them as Gran Canaria, attributing the name to the presence of huge dogs. The history of these dogs is a transnational one too and it follows and crosses paths with the trails of the dogmen, participating in an equally phantasmatic story of origins and nomenclatures. They were probably descendants of the ancient Molossian themselves sometimes thought to be descendants of the Tibetan Mastiff, of whom it was said that they were trained to attack men of a strange race. They migrated with the Molossi, a once barbarian Greek group of humans, from Thessaly to Epirus and later became part of the Roman Empire. Molossian is also the breed type for what are called in English Mastiffs, descendants of ancient guard and war dogs from Asia or the Middle East, Drifting westward and mating in the Middle Ages, the domesticated, monsuetus, accustomed to the hand, to the folk etymological, massive, and the term for mongrel in Old French, mestif. It took nearly a century for the Spanish to conquer the fiercely resistant people of the Canaries. The islands in turn became a relay, first for the Spanish, then for the English traveling across the Atlantic. They also became single crop cultivation sites for sugarcane. then when the Caribbean market outstripped their production, vineyards for the Spanish wine trade with England. Spanish and English dogs mixed with the dogs of the Canary Islands, producing one of the Mastiff breeds that is today known as the Pero de Presa Canaria, the Canarian holding dog holding or guarding Molosser type mixed race dogs, these perros de presa are thought to combine the indigenous island herding dog with Spanish cattle guarding mastiffs and English bulldogs used in the American conquest. In the course of the 16th century, these dogs appear as subject to legislation in the municipal councils of several of the islands. They are threatening livestock, or there are too many of them, or they're running free. Various documents from 1501 to 1737 ordered that they be tied up or exterminated with impunity with the exception of those used for guarding the home or by farmers for guarding livestock and that every perro de presa be registered with the court. These centuries also saw the development of dog fighting matches, introduced to the canaries by the English, and deploying the mongrel that mixing English bulldogs and mastiffs with the island dogs produced. Dog fighting continued legally until the 1940s, when the dogs of World War II, German Shepherds, Great Danes, and Doberman Pinchers primarily, made their appearance on the islands, along with Generalissimo Francisco Franco. The opposition to Franco's regime, and its eventual decline brought with it movements to reclaim lost cultural traditions. And beginning in the 70s and culminating in 1982 and 1983 with the autonomization of the Canary Islands, a Club Español del Presa Canario was formed to recover, protect, and develop the breed. Winning exclusive rights to represent it to the Real Sociedad Canina de España and thus to the World Canine Federation, that recognizes and certifies the Pero de Presa Canario breed to this day. Thus, these mestizo dogs were forged in a crucible of colonial encounters, enlisted to defend and conquer and cannibalize one another in civil wars until they were swept up into a national movement for independence when their race is fixed and given an identity and when they also begin to participate in the commodification of third world culture for a first world consumption. Immigrants to North America and descendants of those immigrants, presa canarios are conscripted to infuse civilization with a certain virilizing savagery, as the following chapter in this history of haunted and haunting ontologies suggests. Six, the case of Diane Whipple. On January 26, 2001, two Presa Canarios, a dog and a bitch named Bane and Hera, attacked Diane Whipple in the hallway of her Pacific Heights apartment in San Francisco, where she lived with her partner, Sharon Smith. They bit her 77 times, and the bites to her larynx combined with the loss of one-third of her blood caused her death within hours of the six-minute attack. Bain and Hera were originally owned by various proxies for Pelican Bay State Prison inmate Paul Schneider, a member of the Aryan Brotherhood, whose plan was to become a dog breeder from his cell where he was serving time for armed robbery and attempted murder. The breeder name was Doggo War, co-founded by Schneider and Dale Breches, inmate since 1979, and author of an e-book, Doggo War, which is a memoir, an account of Presa Canario breeding, and a commentary on the San Francisco case. Bain and Harris caretakers were Marjorie Noller and Robert Knoll, residents of the same apartment building floor as Whipple and Smith, adoptive parents of Paul Schneider, and lawyers who specialized in bringing lawsuits on behalf of inmates against the California Department of Corrections for its inhumane treatment of prisoners. Although this was not quite a unique event, other dogs have attacked and mauled people, resulting in death. It was one that immediately generated an archive, both legal and cultural, marking a traumatic moment in the recent U.S. history of dog-human relating, and it brought attention and notoriety to this little-known breed. Some parties in the case made the argument that these animals are genetically predisposed to attack and kill. Most cultural commentary, however, familiar by now with the disconcertingly close resemblance between species sociobiology and racism, adopted a liberal humanist position that, on the one hand, polices the ontological boundaries between canine and human, and on the other, maintains a con- contradictory distinction between nature and nurture that testifies eloquently to the fetishist's famous phrase, I know. But nevertheless, <laughs> for example, many faulted the dogs' handlers and caretakers for their negligence and failure to train their animals, while they also simultaneously condemned the practice of deliberately raising the dogs for their capacity to fight. Cesar Milan, the dog whisperer, writes, I'm quoting him, I've said before that pack leaders are born, not made. Red zone dogs are just the opposite, made, not born. Humans create dogs to be red zone monsters. We started thousands of years ago by breeding dogs to be fighters, selecting them for certain characteristics and matching them up with a similar mate. We breed these dogs to be warriors, but under their armor, they're simply dogs with more powerful weapons than other dogs. They don't begin life as dangerously aggressive. Though fighting is in their genes, they need guidance to bring this instinct out. Discourses such as Milan's posit an originary and natural innocence followed by a genetic fall due to human intervention, a kind of diabolical eugenics project that produces organic warriors or fierce killer dogs. They also, to different degrees, argue against genetic determinism by positing a decisive role for nurture or human cultural intervention into instinctual potentiality. Nurture The thing that is to blame, right, breeding warriors, as Milan's statement makes clear, is also the cure, proper training, for what nurture has genetically produced. Both statements um, and the overwhelming majority of assertions regarding the case point to a conundrum of dog-human nature culture, the inability definitively to articulate the boundary between nature and culture animal and human, in the history and agency of this companion-species relation. Milan is fond of stating that underneath the armor, or sometimes clothing, of breed is dog, a category that for him is a natural one. But he cannot escape the genetic metaphor that implants breed deep below the surface that the wearing of armor would otherwise connote. His discourse echoes the enlightened humanism of a Montaigne or Rousseau, with reference to noble savagery. It is civilization that corrupts a natural and Edenic state of being. Montaigne's is a discourse about new world indigeneity. In Of Cannibals, there's no small measure of nostalgia for an archaic, autochthonous, and uncorrupted warrior culture of virility, upholding the values of courage, loyalty, and strength, values most often promoted by the breed sites that advertise *Praise Canario's. Indeed, some breeders and experts who rose to the defense of praises argued that Bain and Hera were not pure specimens, as though mongrelization were the decisive factor in their aggressive attack. And yet theirs is a history of mixing designed to produce the warrior that the synanthropes and cynocephalics who preceded them, mixed species themselves, were thought to be. Like Montaigne and Rousseau, these arguments obscure even as they intermittently recognize the always already thoroughly contaminated category to which any dog and any human civilization belongs. The doubly supplemental and fetishistic logic that says that culture must be added to nature to enhance it and to repair a deficiency in nature resulting from culture, on the one hand, And that the animal prosthetic that supplements a lack in the human also produces an excess on the other testifies to the work of a symptom, what Slavoj Zizek describes as the ideological symptom par excellence, a recognition, a knowledge that is refused not as a matter of belief but in practice. And this is quotation number six. The impasses of this contradiction also recall anthropologist Claude Lévi-Strauss's name for the boundary between nature and culture, the incest prohibition. In its character as universal, the incest prohibition would seem to be natural. In its character as rule, however, it partakes of culture. For Levi-Strauss, it is above all a prohibition against the fantasy of and desire for an endogamous intimacy, not unlike ontological blurring, where the merger of other and self constitutes an inside against which outsiderness or alterity is measured and refused. Levi-Strauss argues that symbolic manifestations of incest, and I'm quoting him, do not commemorate an actual event. They are something else and more, the permanent expression of a desire for disorder or rather counter order. The desire for an archaic counter order figured in the plenitude of human dog becoming is a recognition disavowed in humanist efforts to maintain the ontological divide between nature and culture, dog and human in this scene of violent species merger. Seven, becoming dog. Traces of this recognition persist, both in the accusations of bestiality against Knoll and especially Knoller, rejected as evidence in the trial, and in the jury's subsequently overturned and later reinstated verdict of second degree murder, implicating both dog and human in a murderous agency and intent. What may be seen to haunt this case is the possibility that rather than an accidental failure in the history of social relations between humans and dogs, the attack on Diane Whipple was one exemplary instance of an archaic force unleashed in and by dog-human becoming. It is perhaps no accident, then, that the desire for synanthropic becoming finds its fullest expression in the underwriting of this palimpsest populated by ghosts in the machine of the prison industrial complex. In Dogs of War, Breches provides an account of the Dog of War breeder project that he and his cellmate developed, autobiographically linking his life of fighting to the fighting dogs he grew up with and the breed that came to incarnate for him a heroic ideal. Throughout this book, a double portrait emerges, the embattled survivalism of a warrior protecting family and tribe against a world of hostile strangers on the one hand, and the heroic individualism of a captive gladiator pitted against other gladiators for sport in a battle to the death on the other. In the SHU prison, inmates form racialized tribes for protection against the guards and other racialized tribes and values strength, courage, sang loyalty, pain tolerance, and the ability to fight. Schneider's description of the Aryan Brotherhood, whose motto, in for life and out by death, points to a double condition of constraint, both individual and collective, horizontal and vertical, puts this in stark and somewhat counterintuitive terms. This is Schneider. I'm no Nazi. I'm in prison. Prison is made up of blacks, Mexicans, whites. The whites are a minority. I've grown up around black people. They don't relate to me. I don't relate to them. Things are really racially divided in prison. I'm not a white supremacist. I didn't start the Aryan Brotherhood, and I'm not going to end it. I'm just along for the ride. The motto emblazoned on Brecht's Dog a War Breeder logo is courage, strength, loyalty the literature, including his book and Milan's, document the tests of gameness, the ability to fight to the death, administered by dogmen to produce the combination of hardness and endurance, especially endurance of pain, that are said to mark the breed. This is Milan. These men engage in a sport known as game testing, throwing their dogs into their into a ring with another dog and culling out the ones that manage to survive but that don't perform to the breeder's standards. Quoting Rolling Stone's article about the case, Breches describes the training his prison provides. These conditions have earned the SHU a place alongside Iraq and Kenya in, ni- in 1996 UN human rights report, citing inhumane prison facilities around the world. A lot of inmates who go in there become seer- severely affected with mental illness, says attorney Russell Clanton. Those who don't go mad become incredibly strong individuals. That strength and its challenges are what Bretches names as the point of identification between himself and the dogs. This is him. To me, there's no better hive than the test of one's own gameness and abilities. One of the reasons I respect these traits in praises and pit bulls is I identify with these warrior breeds. Oh, war dogs, yeah, you are the company you keep, as the saying goes. Maybe that's why so many resemble their dogs. This is eloquently demonstrated in a passage that alludes to cynocephalic morphology and extracts a heroic ethos of survival from conditions of radical inequality. And that's the next quotation, number seven. Embodiments of bare life, achieving only intermittently in the eyes of the state, the status of human. Pelican Bay Security Housing Unit inmates inhabit concrete cell blocks with access once daily for 90 minutes to an area called a dog run. Robert Knoll graphically describes some of the dehumanization techniques designed to erode the subjectivity of particularly unruly and recalcitrant prisoners. This is uh, Noel talking. They put Paul in what's called dog status. That's where, in the cold of winter, they throw you in an unheated concrete box with a hole in the floor as the only sanitary facility. You're there with no running water, naked, with no blankets, no mattresses, no nothing. They leave you there for three days and the only thing they would slip through in the way of food was a tray with a pile of literally frozen dog shit on it. This carceral performative works to transform the prisoner into pure animal embodiment, a body that matters for punitive purposes but is stripped of its status as subject and rendered unintelligible as human. The animal body is, in turn, degraded, forced to eat excrement. Prison practice thus deploys the mediatory metaphorics of human canine becoming to produce, discursively and materially, ontological uncertainty as a degradation of being. Caught up, like the runa, in the mutual entanglements of dog and human with their shared histories of predation and oppression, dominance, and submission, and unable to claim their subjectivity in human terms, the prisoners embrace a counter-discursive version of this ontological uncertainty, transforming the underdog into an uber-being. Rather than issuing a plea for humane treatment, Brechis and Schneider refigure Becoming Dog as the powerful embodiment of an archaic force articulated in the fusions of warrior and gladiator that join dogmen and dogs of prey. This force is nowhere better realized than in the idealized and heroic carnivorous virility of the preza referred to as El Supremo Bane. That's quotation number eight, which is uh, Brecht's description of Bane. Like the cannibals Peter Hume studies in the history of colonial encounters, which become an ideology concept designating fierce resistance to colonization, the devouring dog, in Brecht's description, assumes the weight of prisoners' resistance to their oppression, mediating between worlds for them and sacrificing himself in their name. If, then, the symptomatic disavowals apparent in dominant discourses concerning the case, consist in misrecognizing the intersubjective relation between dog and human and in misrecognizing as well the degree to which the dog can be understood to have absorbed a material subjectivity in excess of the animal status to which these discourses consign it, what Cohn would dub ontological autism. It might also be said that Bretas and his colleagues prefer, performed the excessive merger at the opposite pole of this trans-species habitus, a subsumption of human selfhood in becoming dog. Neither discourse, it seems, understands or avows the co-implication entailed by synanthropic becoming in this story. Eight, queer encounters. Although the Diane Whipple case is cited as a landmark moment in securing rights and privileges for same-sex partners because Sharon Smith was able to bring a wrongful death lawsuit against Noel and Noller on Whipple's behalf, the scene of the murderous encounter was often scripted in queerly heterosexual terms. Knoll speculated that Bain attacked Whipple because of pheromones, and both Knoller and Noll suggested at various points that Bain didn't intend to attack, but was rather attracted to Diane Whipple and approached her as a dominant male, inspecting a creature of the opposite sex. Sensationalist media reports of the case allude to the evidence of bestiality between Noller and Bain and document the personal correspondence describing a mythical incestuous sexual union among Noll as primitive father king, Noller as mother queen, and Schneider as son, with Bain standing in as substitute or symbol for the absent Schneider. The sexualization of the relationship between Bain and Noller was cited and then dismissed as a potential cause of Bain's aberrant behavior. While the alleged non-involvement of Hera in the attack was also used to buttress the heterosexual reading. Indeed, in accounts and illustrations of praises engaged in the work of protection and guardianship, a genetically enhanced heteronormative masculinity is precisely what seems to be at stake. The Preza male is enlisted to protect women and, as other accounts demonstrate, children against the competing predations of strange men. Preza websites often display puppies surrounded by children to illustrate their docile nature on the one hand, and adults attacking padded men during Schutze training on the other. While anecdotal accounts often turn on the seeming contradiction, reminiscent of travelers' accounts of the cynocephalic cannibals, between a protective, gentle, human-like intelligence and temperament, and a ferocity toward hostile strangers. And quotation number nine is an, uh, an account of a preza owner um, who wanted to see if um, whose boyfriend wanted to see if her dog would attack. Sanders Kennel displays the sheer power of the Preza by visually staging him in a gym, wearing a spiked leather collar, and foe dominated by an equally muscular but very slender Asian woman in army fatigues and ersatz combat boots, or held at least slinks and or companionably seated next to an African-American male bodybuilder, heavyweight lifter. These are the top two illustrations. He, for this present, is of course a male, is the ideologically compensatory fetish. Freud makes the point that fetishism acts as a memorial to the horror of castration, wards it off, and this is Freud, saves the fetishist from being a homosexual by endowing women with the attribute which makes them acceptable as sexual objects. In these photographs, the fetish is doubled the human bodies of color already assume the cultural significance of bodily plenitude in the U.S., in U.S. culture, even as, simultaneously, the dog prosthetically restores potency, that is, stands in and compensates for the symbolic castration to which those bodies are subject. Sanders Kennel also offers some clues to the disavowals at work in the heterosexualization of the praises, participation in human kinship arrangements. It suggests that the dog's masculinity, though metaphorically heterosexual perhaps, metonymically works as identification, a site of narcissistic investment in a self that, as a consequence, evades the implied homosexuality this narcissism would otherwise entail. That this fetishistic relation is linked to bodies of color on the website reiterates the ideological and historical affinity of dogs and dogmen in the multiple colonial encounters that haunt their ontological merger, effected here through the related metaphors of species and race. It is precisely that juxtaposition that also hints at another dimension of the disavowals in this case, the spectral appearance of the myth of the black rapist at the scene of the murder uncannily accented by the ultra whiteness of photographs of Whipple and the ultra blackness of Bain that circulated in the press. And those are the bottom two illustrations. On the one hand then, there's an effort to re-normativize a queer cross species encounter through the heterosexual matrix. A matrix that in this case disregards species difference insofar as it signifies anything other than primitive masculinity. But to inscribe the encounter with human heterosexual meaning also conjures spectral, spectacular, and specular histories of racialized power in the United States. Both sexual sexuality and racial conflict conflict both transform the human dog encounter into a potent and condensed figure of human, sexual, and racial conflict distributed across multiple cultural institutions or state apparatuses from the legal system to the prison system to the populist imagination represented by the media. Coda. In the epilogue to his book, Brecht's, whose analysis of the legal case is a fascinating, if paranoid, view of San Francisco insider politics, makes a shocking remark. This is Brechis. And if all this wasn't poetic enough, grin. Sharon Smith went ahead and took her cut of the $2.5 she cheated the apartment building owner out of and got her and her newest life mate pregnant. They stole my idea to use the lawsuit money to breed dogs. In some sense, Bretches succeeds. Sales of Preza Canarios rose spectacularly in the United States after this event. But I also hear in these lines another postcolonial hybrid's wish, one whose name carries our story in it too. Oh ho, oh ho, would had been done thou didst prevent me. I had peopled else this isle with calibans. The agencies and subjectivities that collided in the Diane Wibble case are not available to me, however much I might wish to understand them. And were such access possible, it wouldn't offer up truth, even if the Native informants were to speak languages for purposes other than to curse. The figure of the synanthrope has in this tale been domesticated insofar as its hybrid borderland ferocity, its queer pre and post-colonial travels become relegated to the archaic, even mythic genealogies of white primitivism. While its current day racialization is timelessly fetishized in a present of meaning, but a present that, like the fetish, is haunted by history. The figural genealogies I've been tracking amount to a historical hauntology. A story of the ways haunted ontologies that are not only human can be said to appear and reappear in specific historical and social cultural collisions. They have a force and they have effects. They are an archive of feelings with material consequences that elude even as they affect the rationalist disavowals of liberal humanism relative to synanthropic becoming. If we are, as Haraway asserts, partners in a crime of evolution, and if evolution can be said to be historical, it's not a crime prosecutable through the assignment of blame to the sovereign subject conceived in humanist terms. Newer ways to think agency, subjectivity, and social collectivity will need to be forged for the evolution of this social, but not altogether human species being. Thank you.